Butter with that, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends get together and talk about all things movies. I am here with Sam, Dave, and Connor, and we are in the thick of duds and thuds, which is such a great name for a theme. Uh, But before we dive into duds and thuds, just want to check in with everyone, see how people are doing, see if anyone's watched anything recently. How's everyone feeling? I saw a big movie release this past weekend. Uh, and that was Matt Reeves' The Batman with Robert Pattinson, Zoe Kravitz, Colin Farrell, et cetera. And what'd you think? I, Without I thought it was giving re- spoilies. I, I don't mm. know if that, whether there's really anything to spoil, but. No spoilies, but I thought it was, I thought it was really great. Definitely. Um, we were texting with this in the group. I think definitely Dave, I agree with you the best thing since the dark Knight, but that's not a, particularly high bar to cross, um, I think. And so I, I thought Pattinson's great. I thought the world they built was great. Um, Paul Dano really had a terrifying Riddler. Uh, and it was cool to watch a Batman movie where its parents felt like Seven and Zodiac. Um, that was just like a cool way to like, and bringing Batman kind of first, you know, noir feeling Batman movie, which I thought was pretty cool. As I recall, somebody else of the in the group also saw it. <laughs> yeah, I'd seen it uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, walked out of it very satisfied. Uh, thought there was some stuff that is very derivative, almost like to a T <laughs> here and there, especially seven. Um, but yeah, on the whole, it, it does, as Connor mentioned, a really great job of building this vision of Gotham. Uh, does a lot of really nice work cinematically with like recurring red motifs and things that are, are really powerful some really great sound design and an amazing score uh really great performances all around i'd say especially and to my surprise uh colin farrell as penguin which was really great um i understand we have more of that probably coming down the pike with these uh franchises as they continue it sounds like there's going to be a spin-off show that's coming out soon that predates this and is a penguin thing at any rate um yeah, the more I've thought about it since seeing it, the more I've liked it. So I'm looking forward to checking it out in theaters again. Friend That's of, awesome. Uh, a friend of the pod, Tom, uh, would not stop talking to me about it on Sunday. And uh, something that he just waxed poetic about was the the new Batmobile. And um, as I showed in the chat, the Batmobile was randomly in Philadelphia like a couple weekends ago, and I saw it. Um, it looked exactly like i thought a batmobile would look like and um for for better or for worse it's it was the batmobile so it was fun to see people allowed to go in it or was it being showcased in any way or just sitting out in the hot sun see here that's what's really strange about the whole thing is it was just there under a tent there was not one person affiliated with batman around um, there was no like person security wise around to be like, Hey, don't climb under there or do anything. It just appeared almost out of nowhere. And, you know, also weirdly people respected like the, the, the rules of the road of the Batmobile. No one like was doing anything they shouldn't be yet at the very least. 
I wish I'd known it was there. I would have totally checked it out. I'm intrigued. I'd love to see the Batmobile up close. Well, that definitely movie has been on my radar. Excited to see it or maybe wait for it to come out on streaming. Either way, my phone seems to think I'm really excited about it. So it keeps giving me stills from the movie and interviews with Robert Pattinson, which obviously I watch because the way I waste a lot of time is going down YouTube rabbit holes and like uh, PR junkets for all the movies that are coming out. It's like my favorite pastime. Um, well, it sounds like we've got a good collection. All right. Has anyone else seen it? Sam, is, was there anything that you wanted to, uh, highlight things that you've seen or. So I saw this movie with Tom Hardy called the drop. It's also starring James Gandolfini. Um, from, from my understanding, it was one of the, like the last movies that James Gandolfini did before he passed. And, um, I gotta tell you, I don't know how to feel about it. Um, I think that the plot of the movie is rad, um, particularly like the last half hour. I think it was very strong, but the dialogue was really bad. Um, and the acting was like, ooh, like, I wouldn't say subpar, but like maybe par <laughs> from everybody. Um, however, Tom Hardy and like a tiny little like pit bull dog very cute. So sometimes that's all you need. I, I, I needed like a little bit more, but I think, I don't know. I think I liked it. I don't know. I don't know. Well, intriguing. Um, you know, always ready to see a new Tom Hardy or an old Tom Hardy that might not have gotten as much, um, press. Or but, uh, Alfini. yeah. Uh, yeah. And interesting and sad to know a movie that was, possibly uh one of his last last movies because I, I i watched in the loop and i think that was also because he plays a pentagon or like a general and i think that was one of his last movies too before he died well uh that was our weekly re new movie report we are going to dive right into duds and thuds which has been a really interesting theme so far. We talked about Inception last week, and I think each one of us in a great way are taking the theme of duds and thuds in a different way. So last week we talked about Inception, which generally is, I think, a favored Christopher Nolan movie, but we revisited it. A lot of us had sort of changed our opinions about how we felt about the movie from when we first saw it. Um, and also talked about still some of the elements of the movie that really hold up. The movie that I am bringing to the table this week is 2004's Garden State, directed by, written by, and starring Zach Braff. And I thought this was an, would be an interesting movie to talk about as a dud and thud because it, I guess, kind of like Inception, was for a lot of people pretty celebrated movie. And it's been, uh, you know, about over 15 years since the movie came out. And a lot of people's opinions about the movie have changed and evolved. And so I'm interested to talk about this movie, not only in what are, and I think this was a couple first time watches. Who had seen this movie before? I had seen it before. I uh, saw it in theaters and then I, I think again in college. Okay. So we had a 
we had a theater viewing and then a revisitation in college. Sam and Connor, had you seen Garden State before? I thought I had. And then I put it on and was like, <laughs> no, none of this <laughs> seems familiar. And I am angry about it. <laughs> I had not seen it before, but I'm a huge fan of Scrubs. That was one of the like the pivotal shows uh, growing up. And I remember seeing the DVD at like, blockbuster Hollywood video whatever so like I know the poster like the DVD cover but I never uh, heard it was bad and never watched it so I think this is a great split an ideal split for a great convo this evening because uh I think that an interesting thing to think about in relation to this movie or at least in relation to my relationship with this movie is experiencing it when it first came out and it, it got a lot of buzz. I mean, it was uh, a jury selection at Sundance. The soundtrack won a fucking Grammy <laughs> for like best soundtrack. And a lot of people loved it. And I saw it in theaters and I was like, yes, this movie speaks to me. The soundtrack speaks to me. And I, over time, it's been a really interesting movie to revisit and I also think it might be like a, like a generational thing uh like you know being the age that I was watching this movie but I'm curious and so I have that sort of perspective of revisiting it but I also am so excited to talk about it from the perspective of viewers seeing it for the first time and being like what was this artifact from 2004 created by Zach Braff who's sort of career tanked, not tanked, but like everyone thought that like Zach Braff was going to sort of lead the way into this new chapter in his own career of being a writer and director. He finished off Scrubs. I don't know when Scrubs went off the air, but all the stuff he did afterwards was just like a little bit sad. Anyhow, Dave, I'm curious to know a little bit about your relationship with this movie or what you thought about this movie when it first came out. This is one of those movies where critics were trading in the word profound an awful lot, um, which I found interesting. I think that as, you know, an already pretentious uh, cinephile at the age of like 16, 17, uh, it attracted the attention of uh, myself and my then uh, high school girlfriend, and we went to check it out. She was also especially interested in it because uh, she thought Zach Braff was very cute. And for years, I have had a bit of a complex about whether or not I have a chin because I guess she was attracted to me also, so it freaked me out. Um, I've gotten over it to a degree, but I still often don't shave because I'm I'm still worried that I might come off as a Zach Braff type. Uh, visually, but I, uh, I did see the movie. Uh, she was really bowled over by it and I thought it was kind of okay, but a little bit shallow. Um, so then I revisited in college and found it to be empty. <laughs> um, which, uh, I, I feel like this, this equates a lot to my experience with reading, uh, the book, the perks of being a wallflower, which at the time like blew me away and was like, Oh my God, I have this newfound of appreciation for like profound and insightful existentialist literature. And then I think I read it maybe like two years later, maybe less, and was like, ooh, this one's a little embarrassing. And that's sort of how I feel on the whole, I suppose, about Garden State. Based on my own feelings, thing, feelings about this movie, like I remember writing a review of this movie in the school newspaper with like my best friend from high school. Yeah, like what all- What was it called, those, do you remember? 
Like the title of the article? No, we gave it a good review. I don't have a copy, but this same uh, newspaper published an article that we wrote. This is a side note, but right as graduation was happening, we also wrote uh, an article later that equated graduating from high school, like (laughs) taking a shit. (laughs) They actually (laughs) published it in the newspaper. Anyhow, that's um, aside. But so... I think that based on also reading other people's uh, kind of like revisitings of this movie, a a progression was people loving the movie when it came out and then hitting around the 10 year anniversary that the movie came out, which is an anniversary. I think a lot of times movies get either written about again or whatever. Everyone's like Garden State sucks. And so I think hating Garden State, I'll say, is not an unpopular opinion. Probably more commonly people are like, yeah, that movie was overhyped than people being like, I love Garden State. But now what I've noticed is that there are articles I was reading in the past like five years that it's like, well, I think we were a little harsh on Garden State. So it always happens. Yeah, it always happens. Exactly. It's like the pendulum swings of like cultural criticism and just like on people's obsession with like getting on the right side of discourse or something. I don't know. But it, I find this movie kind of fascinating from those perspectives. All right. For listener, Yeah, go ahead, Dave. I think, yeah, as we'll explore, that has a lot to do with shifting cultural attitudes. Um, and how that movie, how this movie, a movie like this is reappraised. Oh, and we will go into oh, the just cringe worthy and horrific uh, moments of this movie that really, yeah, are just like, who wrote this? Oh, Zach Braff wrote this. Okay. Oh, God. Yeah. Some horrific moments uh, that we will surely get into. But for listeners out there who may have never seen Garden State, let me just give you a quick synopsis and highlight what uh, who this movie stars. So quick synopsis, main character played by Zach Braff, his name is Andrew Largeman. He is a 20-something struggling actor who returns to his New Jersey hometown after the death of his mother. And he must confront the strained relationship he has with his father, the community in which he grew up, and of course, himself, wrestling with himself. So that's generally the movie. Not a very complicated plot. And it's starring, we've mentioned, Zach Braff, also Natalie Portman, Peter Sarsgaard, Ian Holm as his father, And then also a whole lot of random people that I was like, did not remember this person was in Garden State, like Gene Smart, uh, Ann Dowd, and Jim Parsons. So some interesting flex of, uh, you know, people who will later become really famous. Well, I guess Ann Dowd and Gene Smart are already famous, but the Jim Parsons spotting, which we'll get into, was quite something. Uh, A little bit about the production So Zach Braff wrote this in about six months, apparently in college, but then revisited it later once he was starring in Scrubs. He claims that it's semi-autobiographical. And according to a random article I saw in Mental Floss, he estimates that about 75% of the story is true. It was originally titled Large's Arc, which is uh, glad anyone who was listening to that possible title nixed that idea. 
Uh, and as we mentioned, it was nominated Grand Jury Prize at Sundance and the soundtrack won a Grammy. So I think what might be uh, kind of interesting is, well, actually, I'm kind of curious to know, how do we generally feel about movies that are written, I, I would say bigger budget movies that are written, directed, and starring the same person? Because I feel like it's always an interesting thing to see a project that is like, like a film project that is solely the work of one person. Where, when do you think it works? Or when are some examples where it's like purely like a vanity project? I think it works when you have someone who's not Zach Braff that's like, this is going to be 75% a true story and it's autobiographical and, you know, like very much thinking a lot of themselves. Um, because I think about the movie that, I don't think Chris Evans wrote it, to be fair, but um, before we go, he directed it and starred in it. And it's like, you know, it's cute and it's quaint. And I, I, I just like it because it's just sweet um whereas something like this is just like i hate to be so vulgar and 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 i just know that i don't like this either um but it just feels like one big like like circle jerk you know <laughs> and i hate it i hate it so um onanistic and, i guess let's say yeah yeah i i think <laughs> no circle involved <laughs> yeah no just like so like, right but it but a circle jerk in the sense of everybody being like, yes, this is so good. Sundance is going to give this an award. It's going to win a fucking Grammy. And Danny DeVito is going to be a producer. So I think it could be done and done well, just not by Zach Braff. Uh, what's it like 15 or so years ago? Follow-up project was also written, directed, and starring him. It was also like a romantic dramedy. Uh, and so he, I think, yeah, I don't know. If that's the kind of the movie you want to make and the story you want to tell and it's urgent to you and you're passionate about it, then I say go for it. That having been said, I have seen very few films un made under these conditions that I think are good. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, like, I, I, I would never, like, yeah, I think, I think there are definitely examples that I'm not coming up with that clearly are the creation of somebody with a very singular or like a very distinct vision of what they want to accomplish and they do that by focusing primarily on their experience and they're writing it and directing it with great results. But the reaction I got while I was rewatching Garden State as I was like, oh my God, if it's not a fucking needle drop of <laughs> Zach Rapp's favorite song, it's a close up of his pouty face. Now I'll say <laughs> those lips, <laughs> you know, beautiful, but like, just so much, so much Zach Braff face. Um, He's got a good, beautiful nose. I do. I mean, it's the thing is, is, it's like he does close-ups and we're trying to get into his psyche. And like, this is about him and about a, one person's experience. Uh, but so much, so much pouty face in the mirror or in the camera lens. <laughs> I think what's interesting about something written, directed, like that feels like the creation of one person is thinking about how they see themselves. Like after as someone who's watched Scrubs four or five times through like seasons one through five or six, um, Zach Braff has a great range on that show. Like he can play depressed, he can play sad, he can play ecstatic, giddy, gleeful, 
Like he has a really good range. I don't know if that's like Bill Lawrence, who's the creator, um, kind of like coaxing that out of him, but he just is, and this is the trouble. And I think an am, amateur screenwriting feel is that it's really tough to write a, about a character who's heavily medicated. That's such a tough character to just write because it's one note. What is the emotional stakes for him? Like if your character is that kind of monotone, sad, like what are the ups and downs? A movie doesn't have to follow fundamental screenwriting kind of techniques or emotional arcs or three act structures. Plenty of movies don't follow that. But for something that feels like he is, it just felt like it was bizarre that Zach Braff was not playing to his own strengths. Um, It felt like he really handicapped himself in this performance. When on Scrubs, I feel like he is an incredibly dynamic performer. When in Garden State, he is so incredibly one note. And the fact that he wrote this for him, like, is this how he sees himself? That's one thing that I was thinking about in the movie. Or is this how he viewed one particular year or several years of his life? Um, That's kind of just... And we talked about this with Inside, too, also written, directed, edited by Bo Burnham, you know, how he saw himself, too. Um, That is a kind of comedy special, I guess, by contrast, but yeah. It's it's a movie, too, so yeah, blah, blah, blah. Or the idea of, like, how that's... Is that how Bo Burnham saw himself actually when he was inside or is this like a fictionalized like we talked about that kind of idea and it just felt like zach braff maybe he was tapping into how he thought he felt back then whenever in his life this you know autobiographical story took place but man what a like swing and a miss as a director and as a writer uh for your main character that is also you well, it's interesting you bring up like not really liking the sort of subdued presence that he seems to have in scenes. That didn't really bother me so much because a part of his character, at least the way that he's portraying this character, is not being able to elicit emotion within himself. I mean, there's like the whole scene where he hasn't cried since he was nine, which I think could have been suggested the same thing without yeah, that whole scene. But I, I, I do understand a character that can be written uh, as, as I wouldn't necessarily say one note, but like, but trying to navigate a situation in, in which they're not able to really go through like a particular em- emotional uh, or, or like emotional up and down. But and, yeah. and that can be a really compelling character. It's just not written compellingly, in my opinion. In Garden I think State. that's yeah. Let's let's just quickly open. So I thought we could just go through a couple main parts of the movie just to like get into the plot. And actually, this opening scene where you have this opening with what I looked up that I, I didn't hadn't really registered this opening. Uh, musical number musical piece but it's a Hindu prayer song from like an alarm clock that I think that he had happened upon and wanted to use in the movie Uh, and it's a plane crash scene a slow-mo plane crashes people are jostling around screaming crying and then you see Zach Braff's character just sitting in his seat completely still uh, sort of a expressionless uh, face that he has uh, and so I think that kind of juxtaposition is quite interesting. And I found myself first watching when I was re-watching this being like, damn, this is actually a really effective 
opening for a film, but others may disagree. What do we think about this plane crash opening? I think this movie's got a lot of stones reminding me of better movies because that's a scene lifted pretty much right out of Fight Club. Ooh, uh, interesting. Okay, so definitely just derivative. Not to be that guy, but how far out from 9-11 do we need to be to like be okay with watching plane crash scenes or things like hinting towards a plane crash? Because I like, I don't know, sometimes even to this day, I'm like, eh, is it necessary? And like knowing that it was 2004, I felt like, was the, like, it made me wonder, ooh, is this supposed to be like a thing? Like, yeah, pushing the envelope in this way and trying to like, what do whatever and really just like looking like an asshole i don't know if that's what what the intention was but that's what it made me think of and so then i did feel that way <laughs> like yeah you're an asshole but i don't know like does it like could a movie come out in 2002 with like a like a simulated air crash and be okay i, I don't know i think everyone has their different sensibilities and and sensitivities to uh that following a, a, felt, a nationally felt tragedy i don't think this really harkens to anything 9-11 necessarily it's that does a pretty specific kind of plane crash these are this is just sort of depicting a plane crash but i understand that yeah there's a, a cultural sensitivity to it now but uh, i guess my mind doesn't go there when i see plane crashes in movies necessarily not in like 2021 but do you think like in not really that either for me. Four. No. I, I feel, I mean, I hear that definitely because it is a, a different situation, but I'm also like, ah, I think I probably would have been one of those people that's like, didn't need it, didn't care for it. Also because I like to be an asshole, you know? I didn't, yeah. I mean, they were already making movies about 9-11 by like 2005 or six. That's true. And so I was like, I mean, <laughs> I I feel like plane crashes are also or at least depictions in movies tap into, I think, a universal anxiety uh, just generally. And so for me, I found that scene really kind of effective in a way of opening, being like, this is this person's current state of mind. Uh, and it's just a dream. He wakes up to a voicemail from Ian Holm, his, who plays his dad. In all of my notes, I'm like, Bilbo just called. <laughs> and uh, he's like, last night, your mother died, Andrew. She died in the bath. And so you see Andrew just lying in this sterile room. And then, of course, Coldplay, Beautiful World comes on. I'm sorry. All of my beat notes are just like fucking needle drop after needle drop, which we can get into later. But so we get a Zach Braff sad mirror face. Uh, so he's found out his, mo his mother's dead. We get a little insight into his life as an actor in LA. He has to work in this Vietnamese restaurant where like all the customers are like, like total assholes and you know, all that, the, the struggle of the young actor or whatever. And then according to my notes, more Zach Braff's sad face. <laughs> so, uh, and then it cuts, he finds himself in New Jersey, in his hometown in New Jersey where his aunt is singing three times a lady, <laughs> which maybe I'll just find myself this whole episode defending this movie in particular points because this cut 
I found tonally pretty funny, um, even in a, like a sad moment uh, when he's obviously at the funeral of his mother, which is a very intense moment, but he's sort of set apart from the crowd. And then at this event, we meet Mark, played by Peter Sarsgaard. What do we think about Mark and his relationship with... So we understand that he's revisiting his old friends or people he hasn't seen in like six or eight years. Uh, So much stuff about all that. Jackie Hoffman playing the aunt, eulogizing her in song is is hysterical. That scene's great. Yeah, then we uh, we do also have uh, Braff as Largeman standing, yeah, at a great distance from his own mother's funeral because... We need semiotics, everybody. He's at a distance from everyone. So he's literally standing like 50 yards from his own mother's funeral. And yeah, then we meet Mark who, um, yeah, is digging graves. That's his job along with another buddy of Largeman's and they recognize him as the guy who plays the uh, the R-word quarterback on TV, which is something you might as well get used to hearing. Um, and then he's invited to a, a party as a result of this uh, because he's... Yeah, seemingly, I mean, he's, we, we learned that he's very heavily medicated. We see that in the opening thing in his apartment, which is basically like the living in body, the cinematic embodiment of like that, like guys have apartments like this and don't see a problem meme. It's just like a pristine white room with nothing in it. Like he's rust and coal from true detective or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah, we, we come to learn that he's like heavily medicated. So when he's not expressive or emotive or, while he's standing at this tremendous exaggerated distance from his mother's funeral, he doesn't seem very affected by what's going on. So he accepts that party invite uh, from Mark, who is offering it uh, almost as a consolation, I guess. And Mark or uh, Mark kind of introduces the party by saying, we'll probably go over there after we bury your mom. And then Mark's friend says, well, I got a shower. And then Mark is like, oh, yeah, I got a shower, too, which is some little moments. I think a lot of the dialogue that Braff writes for Peter Sarsgaard, or maybe Sarsgaard was ad-libbing some of it. I wouldn't be surprised if he was. But some of those moments are kind of like blink and you miss them. Little, little nice gems within, as Dave said, like just cringy visual, like bang you over the head representations of what's going on in his life and his relationship with other people. Uh, So then he has the wake, the funeral for his uh, mom. His aunt is also there. His aunt is so excited about the shirt that she made for him out of the extra wallpaper. And then people had seen all of the posters for Garden State, this iconic uh, or, you know, in quotes, iconic frame of Zach Braff in this paisley brown shirt blending into the background, looking sad once again. <laughs> just, yeah. I wonder if he auditioned himself and was just like, all right, turn your head a little to the left, a little to the right, now right dead on and just look sad. <laughs> uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about, yeah, how, um, as this goes on, how Zach Braff, or at least in my opinion, is not a character, he is acting. But, Regardless of that, um, yeah, it, it, it's it's one of those things with that Paisley wallpaper and everything and that matching the shirt, another obvious semiotic of like, he's disappearing into his surroundings. He's such a wallflower that he might as well be the wallpaper itself. And also just the way that that shot is composed and framed is like another one of those like, man, I've seen the Royal Tenenbaums, stop. 
once, yeah, interesting connection, right? Like, oh, this will be an interesting frame from a color perspective. But yeah, in the hands of breath, it just comes across as, yeah, a little bit cloying. I think that anything I have to share about this movie will pale in comparison to everything that Dave has to say. Um, I am <laughs> loving this so far. I, I, I would just like listen to a whole hour of Dave just talking about how much he hates this movie. <laughs> I can go on for two. We can make it happen. I could do it. I could listen. Uh, So then we get some more convos with Bilbo. Largeman is having headaches. And then, so we, so I guess it's to sort of draw out the relationship with he has, he has with his father. His father is uh, like a uh, a therapist and is like, like, Oh, I know a doctor who can, you know, give you a prescription for whatever you need. And he's his therapist. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so the and I think this is something that Braff had actually drawn from his real life. Both his parents were therapists, and I think he was drawing on this relationship based on his real experiences. Was that revealed this early? Yes. Well, he has an early conversation. That's when he's uh, referred to Dr. Cohen. So his dad's like, "Oh yeah, I know Dr. Cohen. We can. uh, I'll call him up, and he'll be able to give you a prescription for whatever you need." Then weird cut, he's in the garage. He whips off this tarp and reveals the motorbike. Like all of these things are just like popping back in my brain. I'm like, oh, the fucking motorbike with the sidecar. It's a whole thing. And of course, then we get the shins carrying his creepy, which is interesting because the character himself has not been introduced to the shins yet. So why introduce the song early on in the movie if he doesn't not familiar with the band, which is I don't know, but and the way that they do it proves that it's diagenic because he's driving and he gets pulled over by the cop and turns the song down. It's a bizarre choice, but once again, and I guess I'll just bring this up now. I've been really interested lately in watching movies that heavily rely on the music that's played to to like do the work that the writing should do. I love a good soundtrack and I love a well-placed song and a well-placed needle drop. But watching this movie was just a reminder of like, yeah, you can compile a great soundtrack that connects to some of the things that are going on. But when you solely rely on the emotive or like whatever the songwriter is doing in a well-written song, to infuse your scene with meaning and weight, that is a big problem. And I found myself being like, oh shit, yeah, this song is so great, but this movie sucks. (laughs) And this movie, I think one of the big problems with it is it does rely heavily on its, you know, supposedly perfectly curated soundtrack to do a lot of its heavy lifting, which I think is a movie writing no-no. This is a funny thing because have you heard about how the uh, Grammy winning soundtrack for this was uh, curated for the film? In and essence, he like, yeah, to explain, Dave, yeah. In essence, what he did was he compiled, he made himself basically a playlist and was like, as he was writing, was like, this feels like this should go here, should go here, go here. But then he got ahead of himself with establishing the playlist before the end of the movie so in many ways, some of these scenes are written in response to a playlist. So the songs are directly correlated to the emotionality of the songs, which is why it's so painfully obvious. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when we talked about 
how um, music supervision is important in films with Goodfellas. And like, as Scorsese was writing, he was like, oh, Cream should go here. This song should go here, blah, blah, blah. But that's in the midst of the creative process, not as a preconceived, like structural element that you're really calling that much attention to because it presages what you've actually written. And it also, it's like, if you listen to a lot of these songs that he had compiled, it's like as if he's, he's using the lyrics within these songs to directly point to characters or point to situations and scenes. And that is rough where, but like Scorsese, like in, yeah, I mean, I think that music supervision is a hugely important role and can really make effective scenes. But sometimes the sort of difference in juxtaposition tonally between like one song and the scene that's going on. In fact, when we were talking about Goodfellas, what's the what's the song that's playing when the um, that like big uh, tractor or like the forklift is like lifting up garbage or something? We talked about this. Oh, when all the bodies are turning up from the left Honda heist. Yeah, it's Layla, which is a really like saccharine, kind of beautiful, swelling song on top of all this murder and mayhem. Yeah. Exactly. A perfect, perfect contrast between what you're watching and the song that's playing. Um, Whereas, you know, every time we're supposed to feel sad in this movie, a sad song comes on. You know, you got like Nick Drake. You know, it's like obviously listening to Nick Drake is going to make you want to cry. So like, why not just go listen to Nick Drake instead of watching this movie? <laughs> but anyhow, it, yeah, go ahead. Connor. It just it just feels very amateurish, which um, I just think a lot of this movie reeks of. I don't know if that's too harsh, but um, it just really feels like someone's first screenplay who's going to make an effective dramedy and characters you love and the best music and you're going to love it. And then it's just, no one loves it. Well, I guess people did, but. Kind of brings up ambition and immaturity in equal measure. And it was his first screenplay. And so it's kind of like one of those things where it's like a person who wants to become a writer and director is working through things. And the first work is, you know, not going to be perfect, but. Well, this I is totally, why collaborators and collaboration is so important in creative endeavors. Um, so you have somebody to bounce off of, a la George Lucas and the Star Wars prequels, which we talked about a while ago. <laughs> um, I can probably every episode bring it back to George Lucas and the Star Wars prequels, but this felt like a pretty obvious connection. Um, and yeah, it's just like, who who was Braff accountable to? Because I feel like everybody in your job or creative pursuits, in this podcast, we keep each other accountable. Like there's, you know, systems in place to like help people do better things. Checks and balances on the pot. Yeah. I mean, Connor, you're, you're exactly right. Like, I, I don't think that this existed. Anyone who saw the screenplay and then watched the movie and like let the R word happen at least six times in less than two minutes has to like, who was doing that job? It was 2004. So I know like that word was still used quite a bit, but I think that it was also starting to be like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't say it like this and say it as fucking often as they did because i mean they use it the whole movie um but natalie portman saying it like six times in under two minutes like that was like a slap to the face every single time so let's just jump right to that scene i mean a cup like he goes to a high school part or no it's not even high school party he goes to like his friend's 20 something party which is depicted in this movie like movies depict 
high unrealistic high school parties. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a double layer of uh, unbelievability. Well, I guess it's to illustrate that they're they're just stuck and they haven't they're matured in, in this school. in this right. place, which is like, well, yeah. Which I guess I mean, he's by contrast like a numb actor in L.A. It doesn't seem like anybody's doing painted all that well, but I think that's that's the underpinning here is that these people are still stuck where they were and they haven't matured, which is a big swing for a, a screenplay this immature. Yes. So uh, Dave has beautifully uh, explained the the intention intention behind this particular scene. The next morning, one of my favorite scenes that I still think is hilarious, you meet Jim Parsons, but you don't know it's Jim Parsons because this guy walks out. So Largeman wakes up on the couch passed out after being passed or after passing out, wakes up to a night creaking through the living room. And then it's, it's Jim Parsons and they're all sitting at the breakfast room table. Mark, uh, his friend Mark is there. Mark's mom, played by Jean Smart, is there. And she says one of the best lines in the movie, which I still think holds up. She says, she's watching him eat cereal. And she goes, I always try to save the marshmallows for the very end. I can never make it. My mind wanders. I'm like, that is I would argue a great piece of dialogue. <laughs> Pete Smart's pretty great too. I mean, she normally is, but she's good here. If if folks haven't seen Hacks, please check it out. It came out last year. Jean Smart, so wonderful. I would say she was also really wonderful in Mayor of Easttown as Kate Winslet's mom. Yes, FK, I totally forgot she was in, she was in Mayor of Easttown, yeah. Um, um, I, I was so excited for 30 seconds because, or let's say two minutes, I was excited. First, because this night walking through the living room after what he did acid or oh, ecstasy, he did ecstasy. I was like, okay, there's a night. Okay. Are we going to get like a little, like, oh, he's trying drug, like different drugs. And are, are we going to like something creative, surreal? No, no. But then I was excited because it was like a cool, funny scene. And with like medieval times, Jim Parson banging Mark's mom, played by Gene Smart. It's just like, a, and he has, uh, doesn't he have boner written across his face, Zach Braff or something, or Dick or balls? I think yeah, balls. Yeah. Balls. Um, and it's like, oh, this is like the movie felt like it had a little bit of life, and there's brief moments here or there where, as uh, Christine you pointed out earlier, it's like there's these wonderful little crystallized moments of enjoying a movie, and then like an hour more happens of not enjoying the movie. <laughs> The thing is, is I would, uh, as I was rewatching this, I was kind of with the movie until the ultimate turning point, which is when he all, he goes to the doctor's office because he's got the uh, rec- uh, the referral from his dad, and we meet Sam, a uh, played by Natalie Portman, in the waiting room, and this is really where everything just goes south. And I want to say up front. I like Natalie Portman, and I think she was in an unfortunate situation. Now, granted, she agreed to do this role, so presumably she had read the script. So I think she takes responsibility on that front. But also, Zach Braff wrote all of these lines. This is where the movie just fucking nosedives, uh, where she recognizes him. They're, you know, it's the meat cute, but it's just a meat cute that makes you want to vomit. Cause I love a good meat cute. You know, I'm all of, uh, I'm all for the rom-com tropes, but just so much use of the R word. And like it, it's repeat it like, yeah. I mean, Sam said it before, not 
Natalie Portman Sam, but our beloved Sam. Um, it's rough, but you know, there's a spark there as so the movie wants to tell you. And she's, you know, intriguing this character or whatever. So they meet and then, oh, right. And then this is where she, he's like, so what are you listening to? And she's like, I'm listening to the shins. They'll change your life. You know, this is where the shins change your life moment comes. The shins are okay, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. I will be honest with folks. The summer of 2004, all through that year, I probably because of this movie was listening to the shins. So the shins were a very, played a very important part in my formative years Changed my life, no, but listening to like a lot of these songs definitely brought back some memories and some emotions, but no, not, will not change your life. And also just writing that in dialogue, just why? So there we have the shin change your life moment. And then my favorite, as in my, as in my least favorite moment, when they're, when new slang is playing, it's cut. Natalie Portman, smile, cut. Zach Braff, smile, cut back, Nellie poor face, smiling more. And you're just like, who edited this? Oh, I know, Zach Braff edited it. <laughs> oh, did he actually? He, he did, he started editing the movie while it was still shooting. I also read that. Um, so once again, he just, that was just in his hands and he fucked it up. So um, I know that yeah. this is like, when we talk about manic pixie dream girls and movies, like it's it's Garden State, it's 500 Days of Summer, Internal Sunshine, and I feel like maybe like Scott Pilgrim. Um, yeah, Elizabethtown is kind of the where it came from too. Elizabethtown. Yeah. I don't think I've seen that one, but oh, you're good. Okay. <laughs> oh, is this? But okay. So so real question here for some of my co-hosts the way that sam is introduced and the way that like her character plays out and then the way that all these other manic pixie dream girls plays out is this what you want because ew <laughs> it's horrific. Uh, yeah I, I will say that also i was like trying to close my eyes and imagine somebody else in this role and be like was there a way minus the entire doctor room's wait, like waiting room office scene that should be banished from this earth and scrubbed from scrub, <laughs> uh, from, you know, any records, if screenplay records minus that scene, I was trying to imagine another person delivering these lines and whether I could get behind this character in a different delivery and a different performance and I don't think so, but there was an added layer of just weird delivery on Natalie Portman's part. It like, especially when she invites him back to her house and we meet her whole family and there's this, just this energy. And I once again, put it in Zach Braff's hand, like say he is fully responsible for writing all those lines of dialogue for her and creating a character that is solely there in service of the main character, a hundred percent. But there was just an energy that was also throwing me off that I think Natalie was bringing to the <laughs> to the scenes as well. The character is a mess across the board. When we're introduced to her, it, it establishes as as should we. I mean, this early on that like she's 
you know, like she's sitting on both of her legs in this chair. Like she, there's not, there's not like an adult affect. Everything about uh, everything about her characterization screams childhood and like quote unquote innocence, which I think is like Zach Braff and many many men are guilty of writing this way. Like see Salinger or whoever, that innocence equates to youth, and if you are projecting uh, a character's whimsical innocence as being instructive. Oh, 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 not only only in service to a male the, the male protagonist but if 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 that's the way you're writing them in general then it, i don't know it 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 always just seems to in these in the hands of these kind of creators code young it really definitely like infantilizes her in a yes. weird way there are moments where literally characters are talking around her about her being like don't use that language or i don't want you know, us. I don't want you, you to corrupting me this, this innocent girl Literally, later that on. Exact, that's what he says. Exact line towards the end of the movie, and so it's it's gross and yeah, it's just um, the fucking hamsters. And and so right, much and so we get to her house. Yeah. Oh my god. So we get to her. Let's just get right to her house. Uh, so we meet her family and Dowd. Poor Ann Dowd. Poor Ann Dowd. Uh, she, her presence is quite a gem. Uh, when she is holding this dead hamster, is like, did you remember to take the metal wheel out? No. Whatever the hamster's name is, dead. Jelly. Good thing I jelly's dead. Good thing I I had time to get peanut butter out of the cage. So, you know, you get also this weird tone or like weird, like childhood elements of like Natalie Portman's home. It's, it's, yeah. It's coded in a gross way, one way or the other, that either she is like, because she lives with her mom and like, not, not that that's not like an experience that a lot of us have had under the current collapse of everything we know, but this predates that in in a lot of big ways. She's, I mean, she's coded as either a child or developmentally disabled, both of which are presented to the audience as quirky and innocent, which is gross. And like also this house, yeah, just hamster wheels and tubes everywhere. And, and like it, it, someone has to tell Zach Braff, like, be careful when you're walking around this house not to touch anything because these are load bearing quirks. Like this house is built on a oh. foundation of quirkiness. Oh my to, God, Such yes. a ridiculous degree. A hundred percent, Dave. And it's like the only, seems like the only writing notes Braff got was like a more cowbell situation, but like a more quirk situation. Like I love <laughs> this scene. We just need a little bit more quirks to her characterization and the environment in which she lives. The Christmas tree left out all year because, you know, oh, that's cute. And then we're introduced to her brother, um, who's pl- uh, played by Ato Ascendo as Tibimbe, uh, Sam's adopted brother. And there's this weird, oh, her, like, help the children speech is just like, what the what the fuck is going on like yeah a weird situation there (laughs) it's like they adopted him from like the sally struthers 10 cents a day program or something but then he actually showed up in the states and she described him as like one of those kids you see i think this is a direct quote one of those kids you see on tv with flies all over their face or something It's, it's rough it's played for laughs even though in a better movie like the like there's some moments of like like wonderful, like Otto Asento gets some like 
some interesting, like some great lines and like has his own like, like comedic moments, but like that whole conversation about him is played for laughs and just, ugh, is just what, leaves a really bad taste in your mouth. What confuses me is, is this a, like what purpose, like going back to the screenplay, what purpose does this character serve? Is it like this, like, is this a family? It'd be one thing if this was a family that had like eight kids that they adopted out of foster care. Or like, it's like, it's like, what is the vibe that they're going for with this quirkiness? Like, are the animals trying to be like, oh, they're so friendly, but they kill all these animals. Oh, they were paying, you know, less than a cup of coffee a day for this fly kid to like eat. But then, but then they forget about him until he's like 24 and shows up at their house because he goes to Rutgers University. It's like, what is like the messaging here? It's not like Zach Braff enters this home going from a cold, sterile home of a of a therapist, his dad, to like this loving home filled with kids and laughter and animals. Instead, it's like a house of horrors and like bad misdeeming. I think the intention was she's not like other girls. She's got facets and unexpected aspects of her life that you would never guess just meeting her in the doctor's office, but just you wait till you go see her house. Which makes her, her brother's existence as a human being by extension, like a quirky accessory. That's the um, thing. She, it's like she, Sam's an accessory for Andrew. And then her brother, Tembe is like an accessory for her character. And nobody is fully fleshed out. And it feels like one of those tasteless 90s holdovers of like, isn't it so exotic that this person's from Africa? And it's like, Jesus, why did you need, like either, yeah, either it means something or it's just kind of like more crass, like set design in essence. Yeah, it's uh, real rough. So we've met her family, we're in her house. And then, oh, then we have the dreaded unoriginal dance. (laughs) I don't know. I don't remember the dialogue around this, but somehow or other, they're Sam and Andrew are talking about how sometimes life just feels so stale and unoriginal. And then Sam gets up and she's like, you know what I do when I'm feeling unoriginal? I make a noise that no one has ever done before to feel unique again. And then we get this dance, this thing. So what I read was this movie was shot with no more than two takes per scene. So, you know, whatever take was there, I guess he wanted to roll with it. And once again, not Natalie Portman's fault. She's just doing her thing, you know? She's like trying to do her thing, but bad writing, bad writing. What was going on here? Speaking of the bad writing surrounding that scene, there's also where she introduces Largeman and the audience to the remnants of her literal baby blanket Tinkle or tickle, excuse me, which Largeman then equates to the Wailing Wall, which he's explaining to Sam, played by Natalie Portman, who was born in Israel. But yeah, just like, again, the infantilization and that equates to to that dance. Like there's something just like, again, I think it's, it's you know, ba- a bad screenwriter equating, you know, whimsy and, and innocence to like basically children. <laughs> which she has to bear the burden of as the source of his inspiration in this movie. My sister is seven years old and this is something she did pretty much verbatim when she was like four or five. (laughs) And this is supposed to be the romantic co-lead of the movie. Like is, 
and especially with the R word being thrown around so much is like, what, like, are we, are you trying to insinuate that this character is developmentally challenged on some level or she's just quirk? It's very confusing as we brought up numerous times already. Also, one thing that was really rough, they apparently one of the first screenings for this movie was a charity screening uh, that was for developmentally disabled children. <laughs> Whoops. Wow. Uh, well, folks, this movie is full of surprises. They bury their, they bury her hamster. Uh, they talk about loss and death, not very meaningful ways, but we learn that Andrew hasn't cried since he was like nine. Whereas Natalie Portman is like brought to tears, just learning about, which, you know, like, that's the thing. Like everyone has different responses to like, like hearing about trauma or death or things like that. And, you know, her breaking out into tears for Andrew, I didn't find particularly unusual, but might also reinforce this sort of like childlike quality uh, of that she's characterized having. And then they fucking, uh, oh, right. Oh God. No, it's the line. She's like, it's like a real life tragedy. It's like the, she says these words come out of her mouth and it's like the screenplay trying to tell us why this movie is sad and why it works. It's like the movie is directing us to like understand that it's like a real life tragedy. (laughs) We don't need those lines movie. One part of the scene that killed a pet graveyards. I just always think of pet cemetery. And so that just should be something that just should never be in a movie. It just doesn't sometimes dead is better jelly. (laughs) So that, that aside, that cultural touchstone aside, when she's like very confused about why he like has this reaction to like the funeral, like, Oh, my mother died. I didn't tell you that. Let me tell you about that. That feels like a note in a screenplay that a producer would leave to be like, oh, okay, oh, you're right. I haven't mentioned this before. This pivotal moment of why the main character is in this town. And it's like, oh, okay, let's find a way to organically like introduce it or this can be a, no, oh, I didn't tell you about that. Let me tell you about that. It's like, what makes you want to pull your hair out? It's like so amateurish. And we made time for that, but by the end of the movie, we don't know Sam's last name. <laughs> Ooh, didn't think about that. Interesting, interesting note. Good observation. He's um, not Hunter, I can tell you that. Oh my God. Well, I noticed it because at the end of the movie, he says, I'm in love with you, Sam. And then it's like, uh. Oh man. Um, then we get obviously more sad songs and some sad, good songs, but you know, listen to them on your own time, not to watch this movie. Then we're back with Andrew and Mark. We well, key details. We they're back in the cemetery while Mark is burying another body. We watch Mark take some jewelry out of one of the coffins of another person he's burying, and that will be revisited later. A weird there's like a weird slow mo shot mm. of like Mark looking at Andrew and Andrew looking at Mark. This movie loves the back and forth face shots uh so we get that and it's like a little as connie you were like edit or like a editor's note these are like viewer cues to be like this is important pay attention (laughs) there are some nice to give credit where credit's due there are some nice callbacks throughout the film the knight in shining armor joke at the end of the movie is a really nice callback i think to the beginning the scene where jim parsons is at the table dressed as a knight kind of forget about that the uh, silent Velcro is called back a few times, kind of in different funny ways. The jewelry. So 
there's some fundamental screenwriting techniques that I think Braff wove in. So credit where it's due. I'm going to take that jewelry one down a peg when we get to it later. But on, on as far as those Fair. other things, I agree. I just I feel like I got to say at least one thing kind of nice. Well, you don't owe that. You don't owe this movie anything. <laughs> so don't feel that out of necessity. There are a few more moments that I will say I I was lolling and was like, that is a great little detail. We're back at uh, we're back at Sam's house and Sam's mom wants to show Andrew her ice skating routine in an alligator costume, which is so dumb. Once again, quirk. Oh, you'd never guess that she had an ice skating career when she was six. But not only did she have an ice skating career, but she dressed as an alligator while she was uh, skating. So one more thing pops into Zach Braff's mind. He's like, this is what a girl who's not like other girls would do. What's so confusing for me is, I'm, did I miss something? Is it set up that the mom is trying to get Sam to be with Andrew? Because this feels like the, the the cliche of, oh, let me show you something cute for my daughter you know, to, to endear you to her more so you can date her and marry her. And like, it feels like it has that kind of vibe because the mom just brings this tape up out of nowhere. And I, for the life of me, was racking my brain trying to figure out why would she do this, especially as uh, Tepende is trying to solve the murder of the the, the case of who touched, uh, who, uh, <laughs> who changed the channel or what. I don't know. It's like, it's a weird scene. I just didn't quite get why. Is, is it just another quirky invention for Sam? It's yeah. just, I think you're right, Connor. It's just another quirky moment. And it's, and as people have already been saying, this movie is extracting scenes or ideas from a many other movies and you pointed out the let me show you the cute photo album or videotape of so-and-so when they were young is a typical rom-com parent moment. And I think that's all that this is fulfilling. What I will say is I loved the shot of the TV with all the fingerprints on it. I thought that actually that was a wonderful detail. And there are little moments where it's like they're glimmers of hope for this movie. But this uh, movie is when, or excuse me, this scene is when we find out that, um, or Sam's mom lets it slip that she has epilepsy. And then it's like, oh, this is a big moment of revelation. Oh, Sam's like hiding secrets or whatever. Oh, and the, this continual uh, through line is that Sam is a liar and that she lies about everything. And that's another quirk of hers or whatever. And that's the thing too, is, is it said in this movie that she, I forget which term she uses. Is, she's a, is she a compulsive liar or a pathological liar? Does anyone remember? No, I didn't pick up on either. I feel like she, I feel like they, she makes some distinction or something like that, which is a problem because if it's, if it's pathology, then it's based on a running momentum of compounded lies that you wouldn't admit to. But she explains that I lie a lot, but I always admit to it. Which by the way, Wikipedia- is work like being a frequent liar. That's not cute. <laughs> Wikipedia says pathological liar, according to their synopsis. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I don't know if it appears in the movie or not, but depending upon, yeah, I don't know. At any rate, it's not a cute quirk. That's someone who lies all the time. 
Uh, I, I just wanted to also say, like, this scene is really, Christine, you mentioned, like, the meeting Sam in the doctor's office being where the movie really tanks. And I think that this is, like, part two of where it really tanks. Because it's, like, you have the, and I said this, and I'm sorry to repeat myself, but I said this in our group chat of the, uh, well, she could have gone to the Olympics if it wasn't for the old epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And then, like, that happening and, um large men still being like that's rad and I want to get to know you like you're deep like this is fun um and at the same time the brother he's okay so we established that he's going to school for criminal justice but like for some reason he's also doing like forensic and stuff like so just not knowing exactly like criminal justice means something very different than that and it could be it's just like so surface of everything that it's like aha we'll just accept that criminal justice means this thing and so of course he's gonna be into like looking at fingerprints and shit like that like ugh, god load bearing quirks (laughs) that is an amazing phrase that really just says it all about this movie yeah great points sam like Nothing makes sense. Uh, yeah, we have <laughs> hashtag load bearing cords. So good. So we're at, then they go out to a, the bar and they're just chatting. And then Sam explains about the helmet. She has to wear the helmet as preventative care, like for the particular health package she has because she has epilepsy. And they have a whole conversation that she like laughs about her. It's sort of like, you know, the screenwriting moment of being like, ah, it, it it is also something to laugh at, at, you know, one's own problems and, you know, situations and traumas and things like that. And it's just supposed to be like a meaningful moment. Sure. All right. I love the, you know, bar confessional scenes and movies where people can really let loose and talk about what they want to talk about, but like, whatever this movie or the scene also, them their conversation ends with Mark going, "Hey, vaginas," and then which, in the moment, I kind of, I kind of laughed. I'll admit, but then what I didn't laugh at is when, when fucking Sam is like, "Oh, it's okay. I'm just one of the guys. It doesn't matter. I can loll at hey vaginas." But then just the oh god, more bad writing for Sam. That's actually really, I was looking at your notes earlier today and one of the notes just says vagina apology question mark. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. So just some weird moments. And then there's a party happening, right? We got to get to the like cool party. So then they go back to the rich friend who invented silent Velcro. They go to his house. and, And so Sam's been racking up the quirk points but then we find out about another one of Largeman's quirks is that he can't swim. Oh my God, what a great detail. <laughs> oh, you're not seeing like the depth, man. Cause like the pool is like life, man. And he doesn't know how to just dive in, man. So much there, right. And another one of the scenes that always get replayed like in the trailer, little you know snippets of the movie where all the friends are diving in and Largeman is standing by the side of the pool with his hands covering his crotch because he's cold or can't swim or whatever. So just, you know, we get that moment. But if that moment can't be topped, I mean, but the moment can be topped. We then have the fucking fireside 
chat with all the friends <laughs> gathering by the roaring fire. I know everyone loved this scene. <laughs> I had to walk out of the room. Like, <laughs> I, I'm usually, th- this um, month is, has tested me, as we'll talk about in the next two weeks, about being able to sit down and watch a, a movie start to finish. I, I had to walk out of the room for this. I took like a 20-minute break. I was like, I just the bars I just couldn't follow what was happening or like care and I was like I, I gotta take a break I would love a scene like this if it knew what kind of movie it was like these are the kinds of scenes that are like written in like really just classic like bodice well no not bodice rippers but like teen equivalent of bod- like what somebody would imagine would be like the ideal situation if you're like sitting with your crush. It's like the four of you are all by this roaring fire and then two are like summoned away or whatever. And then suddenly you're sitting in front of this beautiful roaring fire with like somebody you like, and then they have a deep conversation. Life doesn't happen like this. Now, granted movies don't depict real life, but we, oh God, this, this dialogue just reveals a whole bunch of stuff that actually Andrew Largeman was the reason, like caused his uh, mother's paralysis. He pushed her down the stairs, just like some uh, intense stuff. That was one thing that I saw here in the notes, and it's uh, it wasn't the stairs because uh, that wouldn't that that wouldn't be quite quirky enough. No, it's not the stairs. dishwasher. You're totally with, right. It's the yeah. dishwasher with the bad latch because it could have been the stairs, but a faulty dishwasher is a quirkier and therefore better, and b absolves Largeman. Uh, because life is just a collision of circumstance and chance, and that's super profound, bro. Have you seen Final Destination? Like that film franchise, that brilliant existentialist film franchise? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, and it's just one more detail where, and like the way that he delivers it too. And this goes back to my thoughts on Braff's acting, where he's he's not really embodying a character. He's 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 acting throughout this whole movie. Like every line is so labored and thought over that it sounds totally without nuance and unnatural. He says uh, at the end of explaining this horrific troubled past he's had and the impact he's had on this family, it's says, so there's that. And there's so many things where like, he'll just, at the end of the movie, it, it kind of dives into to the monologue to just like, yeah, the ellipses, that was a terrible idea. That's really dumb and I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that because I'm gonna take reins of life. I'm gonna take reins of life because this is life. This is life. No one talks like that. Dave, can you stop? (laughs) I think you just killed me twice in the past 30 seconds. The impression is spot on, especially the that's. His delivery in that moment you highlight, Dave, I was like, what is going on? He's like half baby talking and half, yes. as you said, kind of overacting, which is like- Somewhere between mumblecore, yeah, and over-enunciation. Oh my God, totally. You're totally right. It's like, he's attempting that mumblecore style of like, I'm just, this is off the cuff, whatever. But like, he's clearly thought through that moment a million times. And this is another fault of starring in your own creation. (laughs) You are just constantly mulling this over and trying, trying to capture the, what you perceive as the perfect delivery. Oh man. So we get the fireside, all of the stuff that's already been covered. Ugh, like so much. Yeah, more sad face. He confronts the tub that his mom drowned in. <laughs> the tub confrontation. Yeah. It's so Just good. like all of this shit that's like not even worth talking about. Then he goes over to Mark's house for a great scene, I will argue. And this is when we get Mark 
and his desert storm trading cards which Sam when you wrote that in the text that you were like I lolled at that I was like okay I'm so glad because I thought that scene was pretty hilarious I had some of those oh man and then when Mark goes someone stole my wolf blitzer oh god I laughed out loud I think I was dead silent the whole movie and then I laughed you can have like four quirks in your whole movie and that would be a great one. That would like really be a wonderful, especially if that was like, that's a great character quirk to have of just like, and this is how I'm going to cash out, man. <laughs> but when, somebody goes, stole my- when Andrew goes, how much are like these worth? And then Mark just lying on the couch with his guitar. He's like, oh, mint, mint condition? Uh, two or three, you know, as someone would say, as if they were talking about thousand or like millions of dollars. And then Andrew goes, dollars? And he's like, yeah, but like they're going to be worth something in the future. But that's the difference. It's a quirk that actually explains who the character is as opposed to a superficial layering of quirks. Hmm. Connor, I think you should become a uh, a quirk editor in Hollywood because I think a lot of movies suffer from this problem. And I think that you could save a lot of screenwriters by billing yourself as the quirk editor. I think that's... Then I can have my own quirky mumblecore rom-com movie. Of all the extracted quirks shoved into, that you've edited out of other screenplays, <laughs> just shoved into one giant movie, that will be a masterpiece. That will be amazing. I can't wait to see this Wes Anderson biopic. <laughs> that, that'll, that'll be the day. Um, so now, yeah, like we're on this adventure with Mark and Andrew. Uh, Andrew's like, I want to get you a gift. I got to give you a present. So we follow Mark through this sort of odyssey and the movie kind of just veers into some weird directions at this point. They go to the grocery store. Do they go to this weird hotel with like some weird peeping scenes with Method Man? And it's just like, what it is into going blue velvet on? for five minutes for no reason. <laughs> yeah, like, and I think that's, I think that's another, that's a great point, Dave. I think this is another example where as Zach Braff is going through his plot and his screenplay, he needs more, not necessarily quirks, but like he's seen something cool in a movie and he's like, you know what we should do at this point? is something like I saw in this other movie that'll really give it some edge. I think this was like, he's like, oh, this is maybe too rom-commy. I got to give this some like edge. The grit underneath, the rot underneath suburbia. Right. It's like, I got to comment on place and New Jersey and whatever, but it falls flat. So then we find ourselves at this quarry, which is, Another example of, oh, well, New Jersey sure loves its shopping malls, but look at this geological wonder. Oh, my God. Is this really making you reevaluate your life as you're looking into this quarry and this chasm? We'll get to the iconic scene in one moment, but we're somehow Mark knows this family that lives in this ramshackle arc, a literal arc, like a boat, And it's raining. It is raining and there's a boat. And this movie was almost called Large's Ark. Kill me now. So Mark, yeah, they go into this house and meet this cute, like, like living off the grid family because this is what life is really about. 
And this dude, Albert, is like, you want some tea? Make yourself warm by the fire. Here's my wife. I have a little baby. Life is just about doing things that feel right. And then there's a whole speech about feeling unique, doing things that have never been done before. And that's why he's protecting the quarry and all of this shit. <laughs> yeah, people have been protecting quarries for a long time. That's not that's not a first. And normally if they do so, they don't do it with their small child next to a giant open quarry with no fencing. It's uh maybe that's what makes it the first, that he's the first one to do it irresponsibly. And I remember this scene being, and once again, folks, you know, however old I was, 14 or whatever, I remember seeing this movie and being like, this is so meaningful. This is a journey. I'm so glad I went on. And here we arrive at this warm, down to earth family that's really showing these characters what the meaning of life is. Well, turns out Mark's there to get the necklace he stole from Largeman's mom's casket. Uh, so he tracked it down and turns out that this jewelry seller was able to track it down and he's giving, well, we don't see the necklace yet, but that's why Mark is there. Then it's still raining and they have to venture back out of the boat. All the pieces are slowly coming together for the scene. Albert's like, ooh, it's really raining out there. Would you like some garbage bags? They're like, yes. Then they put on the garbage bags. The three of them walk out into the rain and step on top of this large piece of machinery and yell into the void. And it is, wow, it's that scene. There's a couple things going on here too, where um, they walk out of this, uh, this boathouse and I don't mean a a, bo- a houseboat. They walk out of a boat that is a house next to this quarry. And Largeman turns back to, uh, what's, what's the guy's name again? I believe it's Albert, but I might be Albert, wrong. Albert, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> turns back to Albert, uh, dons him goodbye. Good luck exploring the infinite abyss, which of course we know he means literally, meaning the quarry. Uh, wow. Uh, to which Albert quips, thanks. And after a pause, hey, you too. And then... Largeman, Zach Braff, looks up and opens his arms to the sky, thrashes around in the rain for a second, and then gives a look back to the dude as if to say, see, I get it. And it felt like, like I broke bones because my, my skeleton was cringing. It was, it's a crazy scene to watch. And then after screaming at the quarry, Braff, it, it, another similar thing, after he first screams at the quarry before Mark and uh, Sam join him in, in following his example, he has this little mo- movement after he does it, like, wow, I didn't know I had that in me. This is just like, oh, God. Oh, God. You pointed that reaction out in uh, our text thread. And then when I was watching it, I was like, you're totally, what was that? It was horrible. And the look on his face of just glee and like either Zach Braff himself being like, I nailed that moment or him trying to be in character and be like, yes, I have arrived at this uh, moment of self uh, understanding and epiphany. I did also really want, because just before they go outside, Albert puts his little kid to bed. Like, I would love it if like, they, he like after they do their cathartic scream into the void and we see this wonderful like, deep tracking shot into this obviously CGI uh, 
quarry, which looks pretty bad even by 04 standards. I just wanted Albert to open the door and be like, hey, I just put my kid to sleep. I just described to you that the entire world is metaphorically an infinite void. So go scream in a different one. No regard for the children, the babes that sleep. My favorite scene, my favorite part of this scene is after we get the iconic scream. I keep saying iconic because <laughs> I just remember these images seared in my brain every time. I think pretty much any time people think of this movie, they think of the garbage bag scene. Um, so after they've screamed into the void, yeah, and that tracking shot you mentioned, Dave, that's like on like a swing. It's bizarre. It's kind of like headache inducing. Anyhow, you get back up into the close up of Andrew and Sam, and then they embrace for like a sloppy kiss. And then you see poor Mark, and you see also Peter Sarsgaard trying to figure out where to put his, like, where to look. And I replayed that moment multiple times because I could totally see the gears in Peter Sarsgaard's brain being like, I don't want to look at them because that looks fucking weird. I don't want to look too far away because then it looks like I'm grossed out. So where do I look to strike this balance of just being chill with this whole situation? <laughs> it's rough. He, he, like we, the audience, are put in an impossible position in that moment. And I think at that moment, I'm glad you've brought the audience into it because I think he sort of represents throughout this whole movie us as an audience trying to figure out where to look, where to avert our eyes as these two <laughs> characters, Andrew and Sam, are just on another planet doing we don't even want to know what. Oh. Also then, I guess, after this is the necklace return, right, where it's it's revealed that he, he'd been carrying around the necklace from um, Andrew's mother and uh, gives it back to him. And uh, Connor, we were talking a little bit about earlier before about like meaningful, like meaningful recurrences in screenwriting throughout this. And I think this one, this one really doesn't kind of earn that because at, at best what you could intuit from this is that this is like a cathartic and nice moment between them as friends because Largeman never talks about his mother. We never know anything about her as a character. It's not like she really matters in this movie other than that being the inciting incident bringing him back. So it's not like there's a real meaningful catharsis there. And when he does get it back, it's like one of those things you get at the dentist for being a good little boy while you get your teeth cleaned. It's a ball game in a tiny necklace. And that was her favorite necklace. I liked that detail where you're expecting some sort of family heirloom, like maybe this beautiful gold thing, but then when you find it's a little game, but that was her favorite. I kind of liked that detail. It'd be nice if we had some establishment that like he enjoyed that with her as a toy and as her favorite necklace, but we don't learn anything about her. So it means nothing. Yes, agreed. And we also find out that it's a toy while Sam and Andrew are back in the bathtub having deep conversations because obviously every place that characters are situated have to be bang on the head important. <laughs> and like, what is the, the climax of the movie? Like it doesn't structurally, it doesn't know what its climax should be because how it plays out at the airport, but, but how it really plays out is the airport chase right. and where he decides to not go on the plane back to LA, but to stay in the garden state with Sam. But um, the emotional like height of the movie is the choreo. And mm -hmm. so I, I was expecting the denouement to happen there in the movie to wrap up. No, we got more time. We got more time, baby. 
It's, and you're, you bring up a really great point because sandwiched in between the quarry scene and the airport scene is this long ass monologue mm-hmm. that Andrew gives to his dad. You know, this is supposed to be like a moment of reconciliation. And in this narrative, it makes sense because his he's been he and his dad are sort of always talking past one another. There's definitely something there with his relationship between with like there in his relationship with his father and how his father doesn't really quite understand where he's coming from. But the whole scene is just poor Bilbo lying in his bed as Andrew is like talking at him. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot, it's an overly long scene should have been edited to like, it's bare, like to some key points, some key lines and then move on because it's like, is that the emotional climax? But I guess it's like, he has to reconcile with his father and then have the emotional climax with his like lover or whatever. But it's, yeah, it completely deflates. You're totally right, Connor. And at no point between those two characters is it truly a reconciliation. It's, as you said, him talking at him without Ian Holm really having the opportunity as the father to plead his case at all. Or like even having the opportunity to say like what he says is, it's time that you forgive yourself for what you did to your mother. And like, he never at any point says like, by the way, that really affected me too. But at any rate, like it also goes into like some really ableist territory too, where like, this is now where like, you know, maybe maybe mom didn't drown in the bathtub. Maybe she killed herself because she couldn't take it anymore. And like it establishes earlier on that she was depressed and that's why young Andrew shoved her and she fell over the, um, the, uh, the dishwasher and was paralyzed because of the shitty latch. And he says to his dad like, Look, I don't think I need to forgive myself. I think what happened, what happened, because it was a shitty latch and it just fell. And then mom killed herself because she couldn't take it anymore, which is really ableist because it assumes that someone who is is a paraplegic can't live a full life, albeit with depression, which is just really shitty writing and really condescending and bad. And, and we just don't know anything about his parents. Right, that too. Does after, after Bilbo sends Andrew to go to the other doctor who never pops up again, I don't think, is he ever in the movie again until the end? Does his dad ever appear after the first 20 minutes? I They might have like a run-in or two. I think they may have like one run-in in the house at one point, but it's really insubstantial and doesn't really tell right. us anything about their relationship other than that it's stilted. Um, and, and so the dad just serves no narrative function aside from leaving Andrew the voicemail, which Mark could have filled his childhood he, best friend. Well, he also prescribed him the meds in response to the accident. But um, he didn't need, but that happened in the past. Like, it's just, I feel like this movie could have been a lot simpler if he was out of the picture or gone or dead. And it was just like, it's just like, what is the other, if he, if the dad needs to be in the movie, and you want this to be the emotional high point of the film, then you got to build it up throughout it. But I don't think that Zach Braff in 2000, well, I guess what, he's writing it when he's in college, so it's probably like the late 90s or early 2000s. I don't think that he even sees the parents as actual characters that people need to give a shit about. I think that they're just plot devices, so he can be pissed off. And that's it. That's all it is, right? It's like this kid being angry for all the shitty things that he's gone through. And I mean, like, to be fair, being sent away to like a boarding school because like, you know, something really traumatic happened between you and your mother. Like, yeah, like that's 
that's trauma and like they should have had like a family meeting about it where they like hashed it out rather than getting like shipped off and then you have like all this like unresolved anger and just resentment brewing so like I mean I hate I hate to say that like Zach Braff's right but like in this regard he is because they were never meant to be characters you know they're just meant to be like the the I can't think of the the word that I'm trying to say but whatever like a conduit a conduit for anger that's it but everyone is kind of just an extension of his emotions in this too like that's ever, true. that that falls on everyone else also so it's it's not as though that was a masterful stroke in omitting their presence it's just how he treats every other character that is very true also how this movie treats mental illness and mental health and and prescription prescription drugs and everything Obviously, this is a specific scenario where the character has been under their father's care, which typically isn't smiled upon in the medical community um, as far as pharmaceuticals are concerned. Or at the very least, there would be some outside consulting going on, which is why it's really frustrating, too, when he goes to the doctor earlier on. And the doctor, first of all, encourages him going cold turkey uh, for like the weekend off of lithium and other powerful psychiatric drugs after taking them for 16 years. But then also hears that his dad has been prescribing them. And it's, as a medical professional, is like, that doesn't sound right. But, you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't see your dad as your psychi- psychiatrist instead of, instead of being like, hey, I need to report him today because this is fucked up. And, like, also it, it carries on to, like, this character is specifically over-medicated in a way that they don't need. And therefore they do experience a kind of catharsis in having that numbing, that established numbing agent that wasn't appropriately applied to them taken away. But then as a result, a lot of people misread this movie and a lot of people, it, it, there are a lot of people online who said that like, when I saw this movie, I decided my psychiatric drugs were not for me and just quit them, which is really, really irresponsible. Not, not, and not their fault that they, they took it as instruction from this film, which the film isn't explicitly saying, but it is kind of its underlying attitude because his catharsis in, in escaping that medication is also it, it's, it's packaged into everyone else's cathartic journeys who aren't medicated. That it's just like we need to welcome in life. And so for Largeman specifically, that means that the impediment for that is the medi- medicine is numbing me to my surroundings, which is really irresponsible. Yeah, that's a great point, Dave, as well. And in the hands of maybe a more nuanced writer, like this person's experience can be presented while also not being taken as like, this is the way to tap into your, you know, best self by just completely, you know, taking yourself off all medication. And like, you should be feeling all the feelings, even if they're oppressive to you. What? No, that's horrible advice. So once again, another great example of how this story in the hands of the one, the only Zach Braff, uh, just gets completely flattened because of his simplified takes on, you know, his the character's experiences with medication for his tendency to use all the surrounding characters purely as devices to support the main character, which generally is done when you're focusing more on one character, which this movie does. But there are ways to not... to not only follow a particular character through a journey, but also give light and nuance to other characters within this person's uh, sphere. 
in a really meaningful way. That's a strong movie. This movie is, you know, whatever. We've already talked about the airport scene. We already know. We know what happens in every airport scene. You know, it's <laughs> That's always, true. Yeah, it it's like, it. exactly. You know, which once again, I love all of the tropes of your classic rom-com and rom-dramedy. But I think that ultimately this movie was setting out to be something different. And as the dialogue would tell us to be original and be something that has never been done before, which it is not. And once again, I liked this movie when it came out and there are parts of, well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you guys, as we're kind of closing up this discussion, are there elements about this movie that maybe not hold up, but that are worth sort of like mentioning in isolation or this is where Braff could have really showcased his talent? What do we think ultimately? It's definitely, we, we, we thudded and dudded, but are, are there glimmers of, you know, Braff's vision? I... I, I'll say really quickly, just because I I know I've I could mm, I could go and go on this one, but just real quickly that airport scene and and the way the film ends is basically Braff saying to Sam, who again he doesn't know her last name. I've decided I'm going to leave and work on myself, so you go ahead and stay here and wait for me until I come back, because that's totally okay to do to somebody without any prior notice. Then he gets on the plane, but he decides in cliche fashion, as we've just covered, to, to rush back to her, abandoning, I guess, his apartment and established acting career uh, to continue hanging with this person he met over the weekend and doesn't know the last name of, with no prospects for employment here in New Jersey. And all of this just like screams psychiatric withdrawal. That's actually what's happening at the end of this movie. <laughs> because like, if you if you stop doing like lithium after 16 years of it being prescribed to you, whether appropriately or not, like doing that cold Turkey is not, not only going to change your perspective and your, your psyche and your outlook as it so charmingly does in this movie, but it will also set your entire nervous system on fire. Like you will have a really bad time doing that. And all of this manic energy at the end of the film with him, like it's it's supposed to equate to him like having this realization that he needs to feel things more deeply and embrace life. But in truth, if you follow the movie as far as how going cold turkey off a 16-year regiment of psychiatric drugs would impact someone, this is mania, which isn't quite as twee and charming as this movie would have you believe. So a sloppy ending. Uh, a sloppy film. I would say that, yeah, I, I, I appreciate, uh, Christine, an answer to your question that that Braff was, uh, had the drive and motivation to see a film through and that he really wanted to do it. I think centering it around his experiences so exclusively while underbaking all the other characters was a mistake. And I think he should, should have gone back to the drawing board across, across the board on this script. Um, I think there are some directorial flares that are interesting aesthetically, but they can't carry the weight of this. I don't think anything can carry the weight of the script is the problem. He's got some ideas. And that's, I think, the only kind of nice things I can say, or like glimmers of hope. There really are none. I think when watching this movie and wrapping it up, I was like, what are, I think I mentioned a few times, one of my favorite podcasts is Lessons from the Screenplay, and they end every episode with what's a lesson that they can take away from the screenplay. 
And when thinking, there's so many lessons that can be learned from this. If somebody is yeah. interested at all in film criticism, filmmaking, just interested in movies and like what makes movies work or don't work. So maybe that's the biggest takeaway is like a case study of just somebody who was just kind of went about making a movie in an amateurish way and lessons to be like, oh, don't be like Garden State. Maybe that's the best fate of this movie. <laughs> Yeah, this movie is just irresponsible and not good. I'm so interested, Christine, that you said uh, within like the past couple of years, people are like, no, wait a minute, maybe we judged it too hard. No, I, I, I can't imagine what their argument is, but after seeing this movie again in 2022, um, no way in hell should this movie be watched again. And you know what's like actually kind of terrifying? And Shelby, I'm so sorry if you're listening to this, but my tattoo artist, um, I just like threw out to her like, hey, what are your thoughts about Garden State? And she's like, I love that movie. I wanted to be like, what the fuck? I don't think I'm ever going to get a tattoo from you again. And like, obviously I'm joking, but um, like to the people who like this movie, what, like what? What movie are you watching? So I don't know. No, no. This movie needs to like, like, like die. I think just thanks for, thanks for coming. We don't need it. I would normally say uh, in uh, Eric Siska's We Hate Movies uh, parlance, it's okay to like a movie, but I, 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 I tend to agree with Sam. I don't think there's much here, <laughs> but if you like it, you like it. That's great. So the cynic in me thinks that the pendulum is swinging back towards like, well, it's not that bad because I, you know, I love S like cultural criticism. I love like all of the stuff about like movies and all that. But I feel like there's one of these tendencies where it's like everybody loves and everybody hates then mm, maybe it's cool to love the thing that everybody, you know, the classic pendulum swing. And so I think that maybe, you know, as the tides turned against Garden State, the interesting analysis is to actually be like, well, there was something there. I don't know. I, I don't know what many people's attitudes to it. All I can say is that when it came out, I was like all about the movie. And one of the things is as I was revisiting this, the whole, all the songs of this movie take me back right there. I was like, I, I, I really honestly love this soundtrack. Uh, and I, it's well curated I, as far as like a great compilation of sad songs. <laughs> and I think that's a weird thing about this movie is at least for me, it also makes me think about that time period in my life. And like when I, you know, when you're, that age you're feeling all the feels and to be brought back. Like, I think there's something about having an emotional connection to a particular film that either came out or that you saw in a particularly formative part and that are connected to other aspects of movies or sounds or culture or whatever that you really love. Yeah. It's almost like a, a criticism that ages with its audience where it came out when that appealed to a lot of people our age who were very young and it was very resonant because we weren't introduced to more concrete work and uh, it just emotionally resonated. Then we grew out of it and became kind of embarrassed of our former selves for that sort of like pubescent emotional vulnerability and openness. But then it, you reach your thirties and you come around again and say like, well, maybe I was being too hard on myself in my twenties. Wow, folks, this was a great thud and dud 
convo. I'm glad you brought it all to the table. This was so fun to talk about. And what a, whew, what a ride down a lane that I shall be uh, avoiding from now on. <laughs> a revisit down memory lane and we'll take another turn in my motorbike with a sidecar. Did anyone see any of Zach Braff's other works? Uh, I happened to go see The Last Kiss in theaters and it was even worse than Garden State. So that's hard, a hard thing to, uh, to beat. It was awful. God awful. Yeah, I think it had um, Bile the, from the OC, uh, Bilson, Rachel Bilson, as like the other, or she wasn't quite Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but like might as well be sort of fantasy, whatever. It was bad. We won't even go into it. We'll save if it for round two of Thud and Dud. If it's that bad, now you've got my like horrible movie blood pumping and I'm like, oh, I'm probably going to have to see it now. Oh my God, do it. Okay, that was Garden State for you. Rewatch it or not. Let it actually, this for listeners out there, you know, we're always talking about writing us an email or telling us what you think. I am so curious to know what you guys think about Garden State. Write us an email. Did you see it? How have you... Feelings evolved. Um, we're so ex- uh, continually excited to be a part of the Movie John podcast. Some great podcasts in our family. Please check those other great podcasts out. As usual, check us out on the, all the socials, on Instagram, on Twitter. Send us an email. You know all the handles. We don't have to go through them. Have a great whatever, <laughs> folks. We'll catch you next week. Peace out. This has been a Movie John podcast.